Gatlinburg. First thing this morning, I slipped on the balcony and nearly killed myself. Almost May and there's still frost in Tennessee. What a crack of shit. Ten in the goddamn morning, I've got a face full of scalding hot coffee and a busted wooden baluster in the railing. And the worst part of it is, even with all the ruckus, that lazy layabout manager of the motel couldn't even be bothered to come and check on me. I cleaned myself up and broke off the rest of the baluster so that there wouldn't be any sharp ends for anyone to notice, and then went back in my room to recompose myself. I ripped the sheets and comforter off the bed and left them on the floor, but then I realized that they would probably have to make the bed anyways, and I was probably just helping them. But who's to say in a place like this? Maybe they just smooth the sheets over and fluff the pillow and call it a day. Just to be safe, I put the sheets and comforter in the bathtub to make sure that my distaste was registered. There were some scraps of last night's mushrooms in the ashtray, so I dumped them in my palm and ate them before leaving. There was a layer of fog hanging over the roads as I drove up into the mountains, though now that the morning clouds had cleared, the sun was quickly burning it away. I rolled down the window and let the wind blow across my face. The day had felt promising, despite the morning that had preceded it. After driving for a few hours, I found a small town, more of a gas station and a few stores than a proper town, really, and stopped in for a late lunch. There was a pleasant enough-looking diner there, and I have always said that diners are the soul of America, so I headed inside and ordered a cheeseburger and a Coke. It was a classic diner meal, and hard to fuck it up too bad. Every now and then you find one that really knows how to make them, though in those cases I've never been able to remember the name of the place so that I could visit it again on some future trip. But always be wary of any place with a menu longer than three pages. But always be wary of any place with a menu longer than three pages. Any restaurant, really, but a diner in particular, needs to know what it is and not have far-flung aspirations beyond that. I respect a diner that doesn't try to bullshit me. This is a good one, all things considered, and the cheeseburger was fine, though nothing worth taking note of if I'd been in the habit of taking note of these sorts of things. There were a half dozen people hanging around there, not including the wait and kitchen staff. Locals, judging by the stains on their t-shirts and laid-back manner. I can always tell when someone's out on the road. It hangs over them like a cloud. Nobody here seemed much interested in talking to me, though I could feel their eyes on me while I ate. They knew I was an outsider, and that was fine. I made no effort to hide it. Why should I? If you build a public place like this, then you have to expect strangers may come in from time to time, whether you like it or not. The waitress did not seem to like it, although she may have just been hungover. I realized as I was leaving my tip that in my rage I had forgotten to shower that morning or put on cologne. The suit I was wearing was rumpled from three straight days of wear, but it was still nicer than anything any of the locals had on, so I felt like the judgment was uncalled for. Nevertheless, I left the tip on the counter and turned to go when I was startled by a loud thud. One of the women on the other side of the diner let out a clipped scream. I turned towards the source of the noise and saw a frankly greasy-looking young man with his face pressed against the large glass window near the front door. He was drooling and his nose was bleeding and he left a streak of blood on the glass as he slid down and collapsed. All I could think was that he must have hit that window hard as hell to make such a noise, but a moment later he was back on his feet and shambling unsteadily in the other direction. The back of his neck was black with dried blood, his hair matted down. A few people hurried out of a nearby grocery store and gently corralled him inside with them. I looked around, but everyone else inside the diner had gone back to eating like nothing had happened. I headed to the gas station before leaving to pick up a pack of cigarettes. The mushroom remnants hadn't done anything by this point, so I was beginning to doubt that they ever would. I asked the clerk if he'd seen the bloody, sweaty-looking guy walking around outside. Shit, no, he said. Just now? Yeah, right at the diner. A few people grabbed him and took him away. That's the third guy to come down out of the woods like that this year. Really? I didn't know what else to say. Yeah, when the doctor looked at the first two, he said they both looked like they'd had the same operation done on him. Well, he used air quotes when he said operation, really. More like uh, someone had drilled a hole into their skull and poured acid on their brain. Like they were trying to short-circuit it. It was his guess, anyways. They're not dead, but they might as well be, was what he said. Well, I didn't have too much to add to that, nor did I want to be a part of this any longer than I had to, so I wished him well and left. I had about a half tank of gas left, and I wasn't sure when I'd get another chance to fill up, so I did before leaving. The gas was significantly more expensive than I'd seen anywhere else on my trip, but I would just include it in my per diem, so it didn't bother me too much. Still, it's downright criminal to gouge people like that. I thought that it must really have been the last stop for many miles, but five minutes later I passed another station. But five minutes later I passed another station where it was almost a full dollar cheaper. 
So it goes. There was no time to linger after that. Robert Dove's estate was up in the mountains, only about 15 miles from here, but tucked away off of a series of unmarked back roads, and I knew I would be losing cell signal well before I arrived, so I would have to rely on the directions he'd given me over the phone. To add to that, my pen had died halfway through the call, so I only had the first few steps written down and the ghostly imprints of the next few. I don't drive after dark as a matter of policy, so I wasted no more time in getting out of that little town. It was late in the day and the sun was starting to dip behind the mountains when I finally arrived at Dove's place. A series of barely passable roads, at least in my 15-year-old Corolla, turned all at once into an immaculately paved driveway. It had been a half an hour at that point since I'd even seen another car on the road. I could see the house shining through the trees in the near distance, a Spanish-style villa gloriously illuminated in the gloom of the fast-darkening forest. It looked at once out of place and perfectly in harmony with its environment, a softly bubbling fountain out front accenting the peace of the deep woods, this sparkling retreat hidden deep in the loins of this ruddy, untamed wilderness. As I was stepping out of the car, three dogs rushed out from somewhere behind the house to greet me. I dove back in as fast as I could manage and closed the door behind me. Even though they were all three German shepherds, I could tell by the way that one put his front paws on my door and the other two's tails were wagging that they weren't guard dogs, or if they were, they were being very clever about it. A moment later, Robert Dove emerged from the front door. He hadn't released an album or been on TV since the 90s, and so it took my mind a while to square that image. A country music star in his prime, with the bloated old man that was now approaching my car. He hollered at the dogs and gave the lead horn a good-natured smack on the rump and apologized to me through the closed window. He still had his long, flowing hair, now a luminescent white instead of golden, and his cheeks had fleshed out, his face wider and lacking in the angular features that I was used to seeing in photos. You're good to come out now, he said. They might just want to lick you. I carefully stepped out, opening the door a bit at first to let the dogs back up. The bastards were tripping over themselves to get to me, and one of them slammed into the door, crushing my leg. I shuddered, but bit my lip and kept myself from hollering out like an asshole and embarrassing myself in front of Dove before I even properly introduced myself. We eventually shook hands, and he thanked me for coming all the way out to his place on such late notice. I said it was no problem, none at all. Even thanked him for thinking of me. Can you imagine? I spent the entire walk up the drive berating myself initially for coming off like such a ditz. That's not what people expect when they hire a private detective. That's not what they pay for. I can't tell you how many hours I've spent in front of the mirror at home, working on my demeanor, my first impression, and every time I have to trot it out, I fuck it up. But it was still early, and there was still time to pull it together. The inside of the house looked even more cavernous than I'd pictured it from the outside. We walked into a wide-open living room with a cushioned conversation pit sunk in the middle of the floor and a high vaulted ceiling, a fire roaring in the stone fireplace on the opposite wall. Dove grabbed his glass off the table and asked if I wanted anything to drink. He returned from the kitchen a moment later and handed me a glass of bourbon. I took a sip and told him it was excellent, and it was. I followed his lead and took a seat opposite him in the conversation pit. It was a completely undignified affair trying to climb down into it. The whole thing was a little woo-wah for me, but Dove managed to see himself elegantly and he didn't make any remarks as he waited for me to situate myself, which I was grateful for. He asked me how the drive was and I told him it was fine. I'll spare you the rest of the bullshit, he said. My spine tingled a bit at this. We were diving in. You don't seem like the type of man who requires or abides many pleasantries. Depends how big the paycheck is, usually. He laughed at this. I'm sure you've seen your share of shit jobs. You're not kidding, I said. Obviously, this ain't the kind of thing I can go to the police with, as I'm sure you've gathered. Tends to be the case whenever someone calls me instead of the police. But I just couldn't call any jackass off the street either. I nodded. I'll be blunt with you. I read your book. I called you because of your experience in the, uh... I don't like to say paranormal. I feel like it gives the wrong impression. I understand what you're saying. He seemed relieved. You know, for a famous author, you're a pretty difficult man to track down. You must have a different definition of famous than I do, I said. He shrugged. Did you like my book? I asked. He smiled. I read it cover to cover three times. Jesus, I'm not even sure I've read it that much. You find a lot of time for these things when you're retired, he said. <laughs> I believe it. It's fucking crazy, man, he said. You think, like, how in the hell do that many people go missing out in nature like that and they just never find them? They just never turn up. 
But then you move someplace like this and it becomes, I don't know, much more obvious how that could happen. I know what you mean. You mean refresh that, he asked, pointing to my drink? And I did. He returned a minute later. A lot of your stories, when I read them, I would start to pick up on what I thought were patterns. I mean, I might be wrong. I don't think you're wrong, I told him. Over the years, I've also noticed some distinct patterns forming. What inspired you to do all this research, to write these? It was actually, well, I had an experience of my own back when I was living in Arizona and working as a sheriff out there. No shit, he said. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm also from Arizona myself. I did, in fact, I told him. Us Arizona boys gotta stick together. He smiled at me, and his whole face smiled, his bright eyes a striking shade of green. There was more charm and charisma in that one smile than I'd been able to muster over my entire life. I sheepishly grinned down at my lap. That's right, I said. So what happened, if you don't mind me asking? It's a hell of a long story, I said. Shit, man, if you're down to tell it, I got nothing but time up here. Figure I can show you around the place tomorrow when it's light out. That sounds good to me. Wait, before you start... He reached into his pocket and pulled out an enormous joint. He held it up between his thumb and forefinger, displaying it for me, and raised his eyebrows. That sounds like a fantastic idea, I said. Outside, we passed the joint back and forth, and I tilted my head back to look at the sky. And even through the leaves of the tall trees that overrung the driveway, I could see the stars. Hundreds of them. Many more than I could see at home in Nashville. I couldn't look away, even when my neck began to ache. Beautiful, ain't it? Asked Dove. I'd almost forgotten he was there and his voice startled me. Incredible, I said. But then I worried I sounded too much like a pompous idiot, so I just laughed at myself. And then Dove joined in, and soon we were both laughing hysterically, and I'm not sure either of us knew exactly why. It's so fucking quiet here, man, I said when our laughter had died down. And it really was. Even when I held my breath and listened, I couldn't hear any cars or anything like that. I couldn't remember the last time I'd been somewhere so quiet. Only the sound of the crickets... Occasionally, a nearby owl would make its presence known. I really love it, said Dove. Fuck, I'd forgotten he was there again. What was he even responding to? How long did he wait to? You fucking asshole, I said. He looked at me, confused, and then I burst out laughing and we started the whole process over again. It was insufferable, but I was enjoying myself. I walked across the driveway and started peering through the trees. What are you looking for? asked Dove. I'm just trying to see if I can see any cities or towns. You're going to be disappointed then. Aren't we on top of a mountain? I asked. Essentially. Shit, we're really out here, aren't we? We are, said Dove. I breathed in the night air and listened to the sound of the woods. I can get used to this. How's Nashville? he asked. Shithole. Really? I'll take any chance I can to get out of there. It's nothing like what I thought it would be, what they said it used to be like. I'll admit it's been a while since I've spent any time there, he said. You don't want to. Whatever was there at one time, whatever soul it once had, you know, real people doing real work, was stripped bare and sold for parts a long time ago, I started. It's all gloss and sheen. No, no, no substance. Only things that survived were what they thought they could sell to tourists for a profit or put on a t-shirt, but they're just hollow shells of what they used to be, you know? No substance. They cleaned up parts of it, sure, but it's nothing like... It's nothing like Instagram murals and bachelorette parties on those huge 10-person bikes fucking up traffic. Can't get a beer for less than $10 in any of the bars. What they don't seem to realize what I keep trying to tell people is that fad cities go as fast as they come. The bachelorette parties, the spring breaker college idiots from some Chicago suburb coming here and shitting in our streets, they're going to leave and they're going to take their money with them. And then what's left when they're gone? It's a dead city and they don't even know they're dead yet. Back inside, we refreshed our drinks again and returned to the conversation pit. It looked far more welcoming now than it had before, and I no longer felt very self-conscious about climbing in. In fact, I now relished the opportunity to take center stage and play up my ungainliness for Dove, making him laugh. Outside, a loud popping noise rang out and made me jump. Fuck, what was that? Sorry about that. Sometimes people come hunting up around here. Seriously? I said. Dove nodded. I put up signs a while ago, but they don't do much good, and I don't mind it all that much, really. If it makes people happy and they're not hurting me, you know, let them be. I thought about it for a second. 
But it's, it's dark out. Crazy, right? Was his only reply. I was too stoned to care. So, you, you want to hear how I got started with all this bullshit, huh? I asked. I do. I really do, he said. Back when I lived in Arizona, I was a sheriff out there in a little town called Willow. Not too often, but maybe once every few months, we'd get a call about something out over in the mountains. Uh, in the, the Superstition Mountains is what they were called, no joke. Usually hikers or campers, there are a lot of trails in there. Occasionally someone who'd gone out there to prospect for gold and gotten themselves into trouble. There was a lot of trouble coming out of those mountains. Uh, it had a reputation of sorts, I guess you could say. Lots of stories, but, but you hang around long enough and you kind of start to figure that they're just urban legends, kind of like any place has got. One of those stories says uh, that there's a massive, untapped vein of gold running through the mountains. And people have been going out there looking for it for more than a century now. Every now and then someone comes out with a few nuggets, enough to keep the legend alive. But no one has ever managed to find anything substantial. And no one can set up any kind of permanent operation in there because it's on Apache land. Some versions of the story will say that the Apache prowl around those mountains, guarding their gold, and that's why so many people seem to get hurt going in there or go missing. Truth be told, though, those Apaches seem more scary to place than anyone. Anyway, 1992, I get a call about a couple of distressed hikers. I think it was in April. Uh, must have been, because it was hot as the devil's ass crack out there. So I get in my squad car and head over to the trailhead, figuring they'll need some water and maybe a ride back to town, but nothing more than that. So I get there, and there's a guy and a girl, and I think they were dating. Uh, maybe. They were both in their mid-twenties, and they're scared. I can tell as soon as I get out of the car that something's gotten to them. They say that they were out hiking when they found an abandoned campsite, that they hadn't seen anyone else out there, but that they thought someone should be out here to make sure no one was lost or injured. So I got a detailed description of where they'd seen the campsite and then headed down the trail to investigate, leaving them on the side of the road with a jug of water. After a little over an hour of walking, I came across the campsite, right where they'd said it would be. The ashes in the fire pit looked to be a few days old, and there were a couple of half-eaten meals on the ground. There was a box of shells, too, but I couldn't find any spent casings or any other indications that a weapon had been discharged. Still, the scene in the dirt indicated that a struggle had taken place. Off to the side of the campsite, a jacket was snagged on a bush. When I investigated further, I found the inside stained a deep shade of red. Blood. I'd heard stories like this before, passed around by the other guys I worked with, but I had never experienced anything like it for myself until now. I was overcome by a sense of acute dread deep in my stomach. I radioed in for backup and took a swig of water. I was almost out. I'd underestimated how much walking I was going to have to do. Once I rested up a bit, I began sweeping the area in wider and wider circles until after about 20 minutes I found one of the campers. I heard the flies buzzing before I saw anything. A middle-aged man, his head placed upright on a rock, facing me. The face was twisted in an expression of pure agony. His body was lying in the dirt behind a bush, some 30 yards maybe, down the trail. I never found his friend. I started drinking a lot more after that, and going up into the mountains on my days off, asking around about them with anyone reliable that I can get a hold of, that sort of thing. A few people from the Apache community, older cops mostly, some friends I trusted who liked to hike out there. I collected dozens of stories. Everyone had their own idea about what might actually be going on in there. A few people said there was a government lab in there, or that a group of mega-rich people had found the Apache treasure in there, and they were trying to keep it hidden from the rest of the world, killing anyone who got close. A lot of people say that there's a monster that lives in there. Kind of like, kind of, it's going to sound kind of silly, but kind of like the Mothman, but not. Like a giant winged creature left over from the time of the dinosaurs. Or at least that's what they say. All the stories I found have got their flaws as far as they go. None of them stand up to investigation or, you know, science, rigor. They've all got their flaws I've found as far as they go. None of them stand up too long to any amount of scientific rigor. Not that I'm a scientist or anything, but... Even after all this time, I still don't really know what's going on in there, truth be told. I've got some theories of my own, but, I mean, shit, who doesn't? One day I was hiking around on the trails, just, you know, seeing what I could find, seeing if anything would happen to me that might give me some kind of clue as to what was happening to the other people up there. I found these huge tracks. They looked like bird claws, but massive, much bigger than any bird I'd ever seen. 
like the size of human footprints. Later that day, I found this cave in the side of the mountains, big enough to walk into if I'd wanted to. But I didn't. I couldn't bring myself to. I looked in from the entrance, and the cave appeared to go deep, deep into the mountains. Farther than I could see, anyways. I got that horrible dread feeling again as I was standing there, looking into all that darkness, trying to get my eyes to adjust. It was like all of a sudden I didn't want them to adjust, didn't want to be able to see any more of what was in that darkness than I already could. There was this, this smell coming out of the cave. The longer I stood there, the more I could make it out. I'd never smelled anything like it before. It smelled worse than death. A rotted, fetid smell that filled my brain with images of a hopeless, eternal blackness beyond death. I was going to be sick. Just as I turned to go, I heard this horrible, piercing scream coming from somewhere deep in the cave. It echoed off the walls and rang in my ears, like the most horrible human scream that you've ever heard, but somehow just... more. It sounded like a man in a fit of rage, but something about the power of it made it seem like it was beyond what a human throat would be capable of. I ran back to my car after that and it was a long while before I worked up the courage to go back to the mountains. In the meantime, my wife noticed that I'd been acting strange. She didn't appreciate that every day I wasn't at work I was in the mountains, and every time I wasn't at work or in the mountains I was drunk. It wore on her a lot, I know that, but whenever I tried to just be with her, to forget about everything that I'd seen, all the stories I'd heard, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't make my mind be present in the moment. I loved her, but I was obsessed, and I know that that was hard on her. I couldn't really blame her when she finally told me that she wanted a divorce. In a way, I think I knew that was it for me. I think she knew too. I think that's why she waited so long to do it. She recognized that no matter how much I ignored or avoided her, she was the last thread connecting me to the rest of the uh, quote-unquote normal world, for lack of a better term. She was the only one who had any shot of walking me back from the edge of that abyss, so when she divorced me, I understood that she was giving up. I was hopeless. She moved back in with her mom for a while, and then found her own place in another little town about 40 miles away. Now, I was alone in the house, and there was no denying it any longer at this point, the way those mountains had consumed my life. I couldn't lie to myself anymore, couldn't give up the research at the end of the night and go crawl into bed with my wife. I started pinning newspaper clippings and maps to the wall. It was all I wanted to talk about at work, and I noticed people were starting to avoid me. They stopped sending me out to calls in the mountains, but I kept up with all the case reports that were filed from those incidents. Missing campers, never found. Decapitated hunters. A prospector whose family insisted that he was perfectly normal before leaving for his two-week trip to Arizona, and who emerged from the mountains raving mad. His mind completely gone, they said. It took a bit of detective work, but I managed to track down the guy's information and found he was being kept in a psych ward of a hospital in Phoenix. One Friday after work, I headed down to Phoenix to interview the prospector. His name was Frederick Gage. I showed them my badge when I arrived and they let me in. I had enough savings built up by now that I was prepared to lose my job for this, which I inevitably would if any of my bosses heard about this. The way they'd been acting towards me for the better part of a year told me they were just looking for an excuse to get rid of me, so I figured I might as well make it worth my while. They didn't question me too much at the hospital, just walked me right to Mr. Gage's room and then left us alone. I gathered that Gage didn't get too many visitors. He seemed excited to see me, but immediately withdrew and grew wary when I told him that I was a sheriff. He'd been interviewed before, when he was first rescued and when he tried to report what had happened to him, and most people wrote him off as a nut who'd been in the sun too long. And he had been in the mountains by himself for nearly a month. That's more than enough time to drive a man to madness if he doesn't have the right constitution for loneliness. Some men thrive on it, and truth be told, he seemed like one of those men. I knew there had to be something else out there that had landed him here, but for all I know, maybe I was just as mad myself. When his son graduated college and left the house for good, Gage quit his job and immediately began planning his trip to Arizona. He'd read all the accounts that he could find online. He certainly wasn't the first person to pin his fortunes on finding gold in the superstitions. Already an avid outdoorsman, he ventured into the mountains, he told me, with full confidence. The first week passed without incident. He found nothing of value, so he packed up his camp and moved farther into the mountain range. It was here at his second camp where things began to get strange. At night, he would see strange lights in the distance on nearby peaks, moving quickly through far-off valleys. 
Some nights he would hear what he described as a horrible, unearthly chattering from somewhere in the mountains that grew louder and louder and more and more numerous, like a huge pack of coyotes yipping themselves into a frenzy, only it wasn't coyotes. After being there for a few days, he started to wake up in the middle of the night to whispering outside of his tent. He could never make out what language they were speaking. He never did see anyone else out there during the day. He began falling asleep each night, clutching tightly to his gun. Then, about a week after moving camps, he was panning in a nearby dry riverbed and found a vein of gold. For a moment, he forgot about all the weird experiences, the feeling that he was being watched each time he bent over to examine the earth. The trip had already been a success, solely for the solitude it had afforded him, but now he had visions of riches dazzling his judgment. He returned to that spot each morning for three days, collecting whatever nuggets he could manage. On the afternoon of the third day, as he was finishing his lunch, he was overcome with the sensation that he was being watched, that he was in imminent danger. At this point in the telling of his story, Gage's eyes grew wide and he began to sweat. His speech grew more rapid. He told me that he quickly scanned his surroundings and screamed involuntarily when he noticed a huge creature hidden in an outcropping of rocks. It had leathery black skin like a lizard, skin so dark your eye would get lost if you looked at it too long. And when the thing stood up, it appeared to be nearly eight feet tall with enormous wings covered in gleaming black feathers, the body of a man with a horribly avian head and red eyes. The most horrible part of it all, he said, was the long black proboscis at its mouth, probably two feet long and tapering to a sharp end. After a moment of sizing up Gage, it charged. Gage grabbed a nearby shovel and threw it at the creature before running away. He heard it connect, but didn't turn around to check. He rushed back to his camp and grabbed his gun. The sun would begin setting in another hour, not enough daylight for him to make it out of the mountains in time, so he hunkered down. All night he saw the strange lights in the sky, hovering low near his camp, but any time he tried to focus on one, it rushed off and disappeared behind a nearby mountain. He did not sleep that night, and in the morning he worked up the courage to return to the spot where he had seen the creature. He found his shovel and a few marks in the dirt where the creature had lain, but whatever it was, it was gone. A few black feathers littered the ground, the only other evidence that it had ever been there at all. Gage collected one of the feathers, proof that he was not losing his mind. He wasn't sure if it made him feel better or worse. Upon his return to camp, he found it ransacked. In a panic, he searched for his cache of gold and found it missing. It was the only thing that was missing, in fact. Beside himself and utterly terrified, he hastily packed his camp and set out for civilization. Would I really be leaving if I hadn't seen that creature, he said. All I could do was shrug. Soon he was walking in the midday sun in near exhaustion. But he pushed forward, for he felt that if he found himself stuck in the mountains for one more night, it would undoubtedly be his last. At some point, he wasn't sure when, only that the sun was still high in the sky. The incessant sounds of his own breathing and footsteps were interrupted by what he said was the unmistakable sound of a rifle shot. It struck the dirt some five feet away from where he was standing, and for a moment he stopped in his tracks. He frantically looked around, but saw nothing in any direction but rocks and dirt. He was out in the open, exposed. Just as he began to run, another shot rang out. This one struck a rock wall near his head. He still could not see the shooter. It felt like the mountains themselves were taking pot shots at him, like he was being assailed by a ghost. He made for a nearby group of boulders and dove behind them, trying to position himself according to where he thought he heard the shots coming from, but all he could really do was pray that he had put some cover between himself and the gunman. In his rush, he had packed his own gun somewhere in the middle of his backpack. For a moment he debated trying to find it, but decided to poke his head up first to see if any imminent threats were approaching. None were, and there were no heads poking out from behind the rocks. He scanned the shadows, ever conscious that he could be in the crosshairs at that very moment. Every muscle in his body tensed, waiting for the report from one more shot, maybe the last thing he'd ever hear, if he heard it at all. But it never came. After another moment, he grabbed his bag and set out down the trail at a jog. He made it to the road about an hour after sunset. When he was finished, I asked him bluntly what he thought that he had encountered in the mountains, what had chased him out and taken his gold. He didn't hesitate. He said that he believed aliens had set up some sort of operation in the heart of the mountains and that the local Apache protected the area. He was convinced that the winged creature he had seen was not of this planet, but the police, who had promised to return the feather to him after they'd submitted it for testing, were still holding on to it. 
so he had no way of proving any of what he had told me. That was on purpose, though, he insisted. Some of the highest people in the Arizona government were aware of what was happening in the mountains and would do whatever was required to keep it under wraps. At this point in our conversation, a young man of probably no more than 20 entered the room with two grease-stained brown paper bags. It was Mr. Gage's son, there with dinner for the two of them. When Gage told him who I was and what we were discussing, the son grew irate and insisted that I leave. I'd already heard what I came for, so I politely excused myself and drove home. I didn't even turn on the radio for the drive, even though I was about two hours from my house, because I felt it would disrupt my thinking. I needed to absorb what Gage had told me. About a week after my meeting with Gage, I received a call from my now ex-wife. She wanted me to come over to her new house, but she wouldn't explain more than that on the phone. As I had recently become unemployed, I decided to oblige her. She moved into a little one-bedroom ranch house and already had dinner ready when I arrived. We ate and caught up and things felt normal for a few hours. For the first time in months, a little slice of my life was easy and natural. Like things were the way they were supposed to be, the way they'd been for as long as I could remember. But after dinner, we went into the living room and her demeanor changed entirely. She asked me if I still loved her, if I could forgive her. I was caught off guard, but said that I did, and I could. I was willing to put everything behind us. My life had fallen apart so profoundly, and the last hour of the conversation had felt so good that I was willing to say or do anything to extend that feeling. With a sigh, she shrunk into herself, eyes cast downward, and began telling me her story. A few weeks ago, not long after moving in, she had awoken one night and come to the kitchen for a glass of water. It was just after two in the morning. There was a cutout in the kitchen wall that allowed you to look out into the living room and through the large window there into the backyard. As she stood at the counter drinking her water, she noticed a number of lights in the backyard. They seemed to be moving in unison, hovering maybe ten feet off the ground. By the time she'd left her kitchen to get to the living room, the lights were gone, but she went into the backyard anyway to investigate. As soon as she stepped outside, she began to hear a rustling from the bush near the back of her yard. She cautiously approached it, and then as she neared the bush, a creature, that's what she called it, a creature charged out of the bush and attacked her. She began to get a bit choked up here. From what I can understand, the attack had been so traumatic that she was having a hard time describing it in any detail. But she was completely certain that it had happened. She reassured me of that several times. Even telling the story, she seemed to be shaken up. Whatever had happened to her, I had no doubt that she was telling the truth, or at the very least believed what she was saying. The police insisted that it must have been a coyote, or maybe a cougar, that she had mistaken it for something else in the dark. But she was adamant that it was not anything like a coyote. The morning after her attack, she went back into her yard to see if she could find any evidence of what the creature had been. All she found were three spots of blackened grass, spaced about 15 feet apart from each other in a triangle. She collected a sample of the grass and sent it off to a lab at a local college where they agreed to test it for radiation or any other irregularities that they could find. She didn't know what else to do. It was her only lifeline. She felt that if nobody would validate her or even believe her, she would lose her mind. A few days after she sent the samples in, she received a phone call. The grass did exhibit unusually high levels of radiation and a few other abnormalities that would be explained in the report, which would be mailed to her. She waited, but the results never arrived. She received a phone call a few days later, a different voice on the other end of the phone this time, saying that there had been an error in the testing and that there was nothing unusual about the grass. She never heard anything from the lab after that. And that's about the end of the story, I said, shifting in my seat. That was the last time I ever saw her. I told her I believed her, went home back to my place at the end of the night. A few days later, I got a call from the police. She shot herself in her kitchen. Shit. I'm so sorry, man. Dove's voice sounded unfamiliar. I looked around and reoriented myself to his living room. Yeah, well, it is what it is, isn't it? I said. A long silence followed that. That was sort of the beginning of the end for me, I guess. I couldn't really think about anything else after that. I mean, if I was obsessed before, now I was fully gone. For a while, I managed to scrape by, going on late-night radio shows, doing interviews for anyone who was into that sort of, uh, I don't know, community, I guess you'd call it. All the paranormal, alien, ghost shit. 
But eventually that dries up and then you look around and you realize that everyone in your life thinks you're crazy. Your friends don't want to talk to you and your family talks about you behind your back. You're the weird uncle. People go on with their lives and forget about you. Now, now you're here. Dove smiled warmly at me. I couldn't help but smile back. This is going to be a good case for both of us, I think. I think it could be the thing that gives you a second chance at life the way you've told it. A new purpose, if you will. Shit. A purpose? <laughs> well, why not? Who could say no to that? Dove stood up and took my empty glass. It's late. Let me show you to your room. He led me down the hall and let me into one of his guest bedrooms. Thanks, I said, trying to suppress a yawn. No, thank you for coming out. I really do appreciate it. Well, uh, I'll see you in the morning, I guess. Sure thing, he said. I'll make pancakes. How about that? <laughs> Sounds great, I said. Good. Have a good rest. You've earned it. He shut the door and I heard his footsteps trailing off down the hall. The room was nice. More furnished and decorated than I would have expected from a guest bedroom. But I was too tired to do much exploring, so I brushed my teeth and changed out of the day's clothes. I climbed in bed and fell asleep almost immediately. I woke up a few hours later, alarmingly, agonizingly sober. It was still dark out, and my body felt like a wet towel that had been left in the cold too long. Dry mouth, dry throat. I sat up in bed and was immediately overcome with a distinct feeling of being watched. I held my breath. I couldn't hear anyone else in the room, only the low hum of the air conditioning. My eyes adjusted, and I scanned the shadows in the corner. And then, out of the corner of my eye, I saw her. An old woman with frizzy white hair, standing completely nude, just outside my window, staring in at me. She must have noticed that I noticed her, because the next moment she was scurrying off into the woods, her hair flowing behind her, glowing in the moonlight. I quickly threw on a shirt and stumbled out of bed. The bed was, frankly, too big. Any bed that I have to crawl on my hands and knees like a fool just to get at the edge of is excessive. I tried to open the door, but found that it was locked. I tried again. My brain was stunned. This didn't make any sense. Why would the door be locked from the outside? And sure enough, it was. I'd made quite a racket, so I stopped for a moment to see if I could hear Dove moving around in some other part of the house, but it was still silent. On a whim, I headed to the window and found that it was unlocked. I climbed out and dropped a few feet into the bushes below. By the time I managed to scramble out, I was sure that whoever had been outside my window was long gone. But to save face, I walked out into the woods anyways to have a look around. It was quiet. Far too quiet. There were no birds, no crickets only the breeze in the trees, the way the jungle grows quiet when a tiger is hunting. Once more I was hit with that sinking feeling that I was being watched. I had come out here to turn the tables, to do the watching, and it would seem that the tables were right back where they'd started. Dangerous signals tingling in my brainstem. I was being hunted. I quickly retreated and managed to climb back through the window and locked it behind me. It took me some time to fall back asleep, but eventually I did. When I woke in the morning, I found that my door was unlocked. There was a radio playing in the kitchen and I could smell coffee brewing. I stood there while I tried to figure out how I would confront him about the door without coming across as overly confrontational. But a moment later, he came walking down the hall with a smile and a cup of coffee in hand. Morning, he said as he handed me the coffee. Thank you. How'd you sleep? Good, I said. And then it just came out. Hey, have you ever noticed your doors acting weird and like... Locking themselves? Immediately I began worrying that I'd phrased it so ridiculously unpassive-aggressively that it had circled back around into coming off as extremely passive-aggressive. Oh my god, he said. Did I lock you in last night? I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's alright though, I said. God, why was I such a pussy? No, no, god, I feel so dumb. Normally, I keep my dogs in here when I go away, and that's why the lock is on the outside. The clever bastards figured out how to open doors, so I have to lock them or they'll, so I have to lock them or they'll tear up the entire house. It's just a habit at this point, I guess. That makes sense, I said, even though none of it made any sense. Hey, why don't you get dressed? I'll walk you around the grounds and show you the horses. I obliged him, and a few minutes later we were outside, strolling through the still dew-drenched grass, a low layer of mist around our ankles as the early morning sun broke through the tree trunks and burned off the previous evening's moisture. It was going to be a hot one. He asked me if I was originally from Arizona, and I told him I grew up in Chicago. Ah, Yankee then, he said. Well, you don't seem so bad. I laughed nervously. I couldn't tell how he meant it. 
I was born here, you know. I love the place. It's in my blood. It's beautiful country, I said. I grew up with my dad telling me stories about the war. All my friends wanted to play in the NFL, and my dumbass wanted to fight in the Confederate Army. Can you believe that? I sure can't, I said. I sounded like a moron. I remember being 15 years old when I realized that I wasn't going to die in Pickett's Charge. After that, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Till I turned 21 and moved to Arizona, and then I became obsessed again, and terribly depressed to tell you the truth that I'd been born too late to be a cowboy. So I decided to do the next best thing, and I became a singer who sings songs about cowboys in the South. He laughed at that, and I politely laughed back. He took me to a huge barn a few minutes walk away. He slid open the door, and I followed him inside. And now, at the end of it all, I've got a fleet of horses. Things have a funny way of working out like that. A dozen horses filled the stalls on either side of the aisle, and Dove led me to the last one on the right. A horse lay on the ground there, and I soon realized it was dead. He opened the stall. Look here, he said, bending over the horse's head. It was missing one eye, a tunnel bored all the way through to the deepest darkness of its horse skull. But the cut was exceptionally clean. There were no wounds or scarring. Was it... born like that? I asked. Hell no, he said. That's the thing I can't figure out. The weirder thing is, when I found him, not a single scratch on him besides this. And completely bloodless. Drained 100%. What in the fuck? I said. Right? I came out here feeding him one night, found this, and then when I stepped back outside... Man, if I was talking to anyone else, I'd worry they'd think I was crazy. When I stepped back outside, I saw this bright blue light in the sky, just above the trees at the edge of the clearing. And I don't know how I knew this, but some part of me knew that it was watching me. Then, whatever it was turns, and it goes from me in this glowing light to this bright spotlight, shining right at me. Damn near blinded me. I've never seen anything so bright. Then it turns again and just takes off, silent. I can see the tops of the trees blowing this way and that, but no engine noise or nothing. And it was moving way too fast to be anything I'd seen anyways. No plane or helicopter ever moved like that. So you can see why... Well, I still have no idea what the hell it was, but you can see why I would think that maybe... I don't know. Aliens? Well, you see why I think of your book and give you a call is all. Shit, yeah, that's... Man. So yeah, that's my story. We left the bar and he closed the door behind us. I'm going to leave this unlocked so you can get in here whenever you need to. You pretty much got full access to the grounds as long as you want. Make yourself at home. I'll do my best, I said. Hopefully I can figure out what happened to your horse. I hope so too. But look, I don't have any undue expectations. We're only men after all. Who knows what we're dealing with. Do your best. And if all that comes in this is a story for your new book, well, can't say I didn't try, right? Sure. We began walking back towards the house. The image of the old woman in my window sprang into my mind, planted there by some unknowable power. Hey, do you have anyone else living here? Your family, staff, anything like that? No, I'm the only one who lives here. I've got a small staff that comes out a couple of days a week, but nobody stays full time. Why? Oh, just wondering. It's a big place to take care of. Dove headed back inside and left me to my own devices. I wanted to start my investigation, but I needed to get into the right headspace first, so I rolled a joint and walked around the grounds as I smoked it. It was a really beautiful place. It really was a beautiful place. The sunlight and birds made it hard to imagine that this was the same place which had seemed so sinister and foreboding just 12 hours earlier. When I arrived back at the house, ready to start my investigation in earnest, Delph was just sitting down to lunch, and he invited me to join him. I wasn't that hungry, but could tell that I probably would be in an hour, and so, unsure of what I'd be able to eat if not now, I opted to join him. Just as I was preparing to eat, a woman came out of the kitchen, and when I tell you that my heart nearly stopped beating in that moment, it was, unmistakably, the woman from my window the night before. She put a dish down on the table, smiled politely at me, and returned to the kitchen. I spoke quietly to Dove, trying not to seem like I was trying to speak quietly. I thought you said there was nobody else here with you. Overnight, but that's my cook, Miss Vera. I settled back in, completely unsatisfied with the answer I'd received, but I couldn't tell him about the previous night here, where she might hear me. It would have to wait. After lunch, I grabbed a few beers out of the fridge and headed out to the porch to unwind from the meal. 
I kept checking over my shoulder, looking for the cook, but I didn't see her come out of the kitchen. Soon enough, I had worked myself into a good headspace and was ready to begin contemplating Dove's incident, what might have happened to his horse. Just when I thought I was about to get started, though, I noticed that my car was leaning slightly away from me. I moved to investigate and found my back right tire completely flat. I ran my hand along the surface and eventually found a nail. It seemed to me beyond patching, but it was already late afternoon, and if Dove came out to chat, I didn't want him to find me working on my car, no closer to solving the murder of his horse than when I'd arrived, so I made a mental note to find time tomorrow to replace it with despair. As I was preparing to head back to the porch, which I had decided was to be my makeshift office, another car pulled into the driveway behind mine. A tall old man climbed out and waved at me and said hello on his way into the house. I returned the wave and then stood around by my car another minute before walking back to the porch so that it didn't seem like I was following him. I did another minute of thinking, finished the beer I'd been working on and decided I needed to do a more thorough examination of the horse, so I began the trek back to the barn. After I'd been walking for five minutes, I realized I was lost, or at the very least, not on course for the barn. So I turned in the direction that I thought would take me back to the house and set out. Another five minutes or so passed, and then I saw a structure through the trees. It was too small to be the house, but I was relieved to see something man-made out here in the woods that would hopefully help guide me back in the right direction. As I made my way towards what turned out to be nothing more than a large shed, I noticed there was also a horse trailer parked out back. The door of the shed was locked with not one but two heavy-duty padlocks. Out of habit, I gave one a tug just to see. A moment later, I was startled by a pounding on the other side of the door. Worried that someone may have accidentally been trapped inside, I called out and asked if they needed help. No response, just more knocking at random intervals. As I stood there, contemplating what to do, I began to feel a sense of unease, and soon, of imminent danger. I beat to take stock and examine my surroundings, and I realized what it was. That same wretched death smell that had floated out of the cave in Arizona all those years ago. I turned and ran. The sun was beginning to set, so I was able to mark its place in the sky as west. But having no idea what direction the house was in, that didn't help me too much. I tried at least to use it to prevent myself from walking in circles, but I inevitably found myself coming back around on the same few landmarks several times. The lower the sun sank, the more anxious I became. I tried to focus on my breathing. I told myself that panicking would only make things worse. My mouth was dry as hell and it hurt to swallow. Nightfall came as an unexpected savior. In the distance, I could see the lights of the house, and I walked towards those. It was slow going as I picked my way through the underbrush and fallen branches, trying not to trip in the dark. As I neared the house, I saw that the driveway was now filled with cars. At least a dozen of them, windshields dully reflecting the lanterns on the exterior of the house. Upon entering the house, I found the living room filled with people, all mingling and chatting. A regular cocktail party. But they all grew silent and turned to watch me as I walked in. I froze. Dove emerged from the crowd, the same warm smile on his face, like I was the person he'd been waiting to see out of everyone here. I was wondering where he went, he said, throwing his arm around me. Everyone else returned to their conversations. Hey, I've got something I want to show you. I think you'll dig it, he said. Is that the writer? Someone said in the crowd. I couldn't identify who had said it, but Dove ignored them. I was swept up in the commotion. I didn't protest. He led me down some stairs into the basement, and I found myself standing in a music studio. Guitars and soundproof foam lined the walls. Through the glass, I could see a drum kit and a grand piano, several of Dove's albums framed on the wall. Pretty cool, huh? He said. Holy shit. I couldn't stop looking at it all. Everywhere I turned, there was something new to take in. It felt like I'd been transported to another world. I became conscious of how dirty and sweaty I was from my time in the woods. I felt that if I touched anything, I would permanently mar it. The slightest wrong move could send the whole pristine otherworld of this basement crashing down on me. Do you play? asked Dove, taking an acoustic guitar down off the wall. Uh, not really. I just sort of mess around a little bit in my free time. Well, here, take her for a spin, he handed me the guitar. It felt good in my hands. I felt that I should protest, but instead I just began to play. I sat down on the couch and began to test the strings. It had been a while and they felt alien under my fingers. The first few notes were clunky and muted, but as I began to adjust, the muscle memory of a few chords came back. I strummed out a progression, letting each new chord ring out and hang in the still air. The guitar sounded beautiful. God, that's nice, I said. Isn't it? 
Do you record much down here? I asked. I have been more lately. Still, nothing that I've released. But lately, I think I've been really onto something. I think there might be a comeback in the works, if you know what I mean. That would be incredible, I said. I sat down gingerly on the leather couch and adjusted my grip on the guitar. The records on the wall were in chronological order. I recognized the first few, though I was used to seeing them as cassette cases on the floor of my high school car. Beyond that were his albums from the 80s, his revival period, both in terms of his career direction and the religious overtones his music took on. Have you ever played down here with the old band? I asked. Nah, they never come around here. I don't think that would be good to tell you the truth. Was there a falling out, I asked, and immediately worried that the question was rude, uncalled for. But if it was, Dove made no suggestion of any impropriety. No, nothing they did. It's just something I need to do for myself, you know? I nodded, even though I did not know. I'm sure you've heard some of the stories about the early days, life on the road type stories. Just the typical stuff you hear about mostly, right? The drugs, the alcohol, the women. Well, what can I say? You know, there came a time in my life that I just woke up one morning and realized that that's not what I wanted to do anymore. That had become my reputation. It was how people saw me, some partying idiot, and I wanted my life to be about more than that. Not stoned or drunk every waking minute, stumbling from one city, one woman to the next. And just like that, I hated it, and I swore off all drugs and drink for a real long time. That's when you started making the Christian albums, I asked, trying not to let my dismissive attitude towards this era of his work slip through at my word choice. Eventually, but I needed to make sure it wasn't just for show, you know, because that would just sound empty. People would pick up on it as fake immediately if I just make this turn to Christian music as soon as my album stops selling. I needed to reorient myself and my life first, I figured, before I could really dive into that sort of music. At least that was my attitude at the time, and uh, I did it, you know. It worked for a while, too, as you can see. He pointed out some of the platinum albums on the shelf. But eventually, uh, I began to grow weary of that, too. The Christian recording industry's hypocrisy, the hollowness of the church and all their ceremony, all the bullshit, really, you know? How gullible the people that I met were, how completely feckless and lacking in the willpower to take control of their own lives they were. Oh, just pray for it, you know, just pray on it. I was sick of that. Back when I'd been uh, singing about outlaws and all that, these weren't good people, you know? The, the Jesse James and them, but at least they didn't sit in trailers in their own shit all day just waiting for God to come and save them. So, uh, you don't think there's a higher power anymore, I asked? Oh, there's a higher power, he said. A smile creased his face. There are more things to this world than we can ever know. Powers greater and older than our brains are even capable of comprehending. That's what I've learned. God's a fairy tale people tell themselves so that they can wake up and live their lives day to day so that they don't go completely mad. A bedtime story that they have to tell themselves every night. Are you saying people would go mad if they knew the truth? I asked. He didn't say anything in response, just stared off into the studio. I felt as if I'd pushed too far in this direction. So uh, is the new stuff you've been working on more like your old stuff or your Christian stuff then? It sounded so silly, so utterly impotent as soon as it left my lips. Neither, he said. I've adopted a somewhat, uh, I guess what the monks would call, ascetic lifestyle since I stopped making music. Well, as ascetic as you can be living in a house like this, I guess. But I really have. I keep to myself, I meditate, and I've devoted myself entirely to something greater. I think that's the important thing. It's the first thing I found with actual meaning in this world, man. I placed the guitar down and leaned it against the couch. It felt somehow inappropriate to continue playing it. So, should we rejoin the party? He asked. I need to introduce you to my friends. I didn't want to leave the studio, but I couldn't rightly stay out here by myself, so I followed him back upstairs. As we emerged into the living room, I stopped cold. Everyone was now completely nude, and they were all turned and staring at us. Some of the men had a red symbol painted on their chest. Welcome to the party, said Dove. A woman near the front of the crowd spoke. We were beginning to think we'd never find you. Out there in the woods, wandering around all night. It was the cook with the white hair. Her skin was wrinkled and sallow. I don't think a single person in the crowd was under 60. 
Dove led me out the front door, his hands on my shoulders still gentle, but much more forceful now. Outside were two people holding torches. Without a word, they walked side by side into the woods. Dove and I followed, with the rest of the party in tow. After a few minutes, the flickering light of two more torches became visible in the distance. We were heading back towards the shed. That was when I heard it. That same awful shrieking noise from the cave. Dove tightened his grip on me. An excited murmur ran throughout the crowd. Dozens of bare feet plodding over the detritus of countless years. Ageless woods. We arrived at the shed. He sounds angry, a voice from somewhere behind us. I couldn't get out to feed him last night, said Dove. Ooh, he'll have worked up an appetite by now, I'm sure. Dove handed the tall man who I'd seen arrive that afternoon a set of keys, and he unlocked the shed door. It was too dark to see anything, but he emerged, leading a young man by the wrist. He was sweaty, and the back of his head was covered in dried blood, just like the guy who crashed into the diner window. He had the same lifeless look in his eyes as well. He appeared confused and tired as the tall man let him past me and laid him out on the grass. Someone else from the crowd emerged with a bowl of red paint and painted something on the young man's chest. Then, he approached the horse trailer and unlocked it. As soon as the gate dropped, he rushed back into the crowd. They were all on their knees now, their heads bowed. The trailer groaned under the weight of whatever was moving in the darkness. Dove handed the tall man who I'd seen arrive that afternoon a set of keys, and he unlocked the shed door. Someone else turned a wheel on the side of the shed and the contraption on top turned, which I hadn't noticed during the day. It held a series of what looked like brass horns of various sizes, and when turned towards the wind, the air blowing through it made a horrible, wretched sound, unlike anything I've ever heard. A terrible sound, a sound not of this world. What emerged from the trailer is the most horrible thing that I've ever laid eyes on. I fear that I will see it in my nightmares until I draw my last breath. That the prospector had maintained any of this sanity under having seen this abomination in the mountains is an astonishing feat. It was crouched forward due to the low height of the trailer ceiling, but when it emerged into the forest and stood up straight, I let out an involuntary cry. Talons ripping through the metal floor. It looked at me and I could feel that it recognized me. Then it saw the young man lying on the grass. It pounced grabbing him in one claw and leaped flying to the edge of the clearing, barely visible in the torchlight. The creature mounted the young man and stuck his gleaming proboscis into his chest and began to feast. The young man arched his neck to watch, shocked. His eyes were filled with an absolute and moral terror, but he did not scream. Perhaps he had no ability to. He simply watched, unable to struggle or fight back. Get him another one, someone said. He's hungry. No, don't disturb him. He's too hungry. Someone in the crowd tried hurrying over to the shed. The creature noticed and charged. The person screamed and was thrown back onto the ground, all the air knocked out of them. The crowd stirred, and Dove took a few paces toward his downed comrade before hesitating. I suspected that this would be the only window that I would get, and so it would have to be enough. I took off. In all the commotion, the creature was unable to notice and focus on me. I suspect that if he did, I wouldn't be writing this right now. For a minute, Dove was the only one who noticed that I had escaped, but soon I heard an awful cry echoing through the forest and a whole mob moving in my direction. I ran until I was out of breath, the air burned in my lungs, and then I ran some more. All I could think to do in this moment was to put as much ground between myself and the party as I possibly could. When I felt on the verge of collapse, I found a downed tree and fell behind it. I tried to breathe as quietly as possible, which I don't think was very quiet, but the sounds of the party sounded distant now like they had chased me in a different direction. I strained my ears to hear anything closer, if anyone was sneaking up on me. But the woods were quiet. After a minute, I forced myself back onto my feet and began jogging, trying to move as fast as I could while making as little noise as possible. The rest of the night passed in much the same manner. I had no idea where I was going, so it was all I could do to keep walking. I took occasional breaks, but I never slept. Black, crooked trees bent over me on all sides, like so many leering goblins. Every now and then I would hear a shouting in the distance. This was enough to propel me forward. Twice in the night, I heard what I took to be the sound of enormous, terrible wings in the sky above. Once I even saw the shadow of the creature as it crossed in front of the moon, but I don't believe it ever saw me. Morning came with a light rain. 
My shoes quickly became soaked and I began to shiver. Hunger and thirst gnawed at me and my feet grew blistered and sore. It hurt to walk and still I had no idea where I was going. I began to imagine that I would die out here in the woods. The shouting had stopped sometime around daylight and I saw no more of the creature. I struggled through another night, this time managing a few hours of restless sleep in the base of a hollowed out tree. I woke up several times, shaking and on the verge of freezing to death. Finally, on the morning of the third day, I heard the distant sound of a car. I plodded forward in that direction and eventually emerged onto a road. I collapsed to my knees on the pavement. My legs hurt terribly and it was difficult to stand back up. I waited nearly an hour and saw no cars, so I decided that I'd have to continue on foot. I followed the road and just before sunset I found a small town. I hesitated, worried that some of the people from the party might have staked out positions here and were waiting for me to show myself. But I knew that if I didn't get help, I would certainly die, and so I took my chances. I told the guy in the truck stop that I was a lost hiker, and he was kind enough to give me some food. He offered to call the cops, but I told him that there was no need. I eventually managed to hitch a ride with a trucker headed back to Nashville. When I returned to my apartment, I found the front door ajar and the inside ransacked. I left immediately, and I've spent the last three days moving between homeless shelters, libraries, and coffee shops, trying not to overstay my welcome anywhere. The thought of returning to my apartment fills me with dread, but I don't have much of a choice. Tomorrow I will collect my things, and, God willing, I will take the first bus that I can find and ride it as far away from Tennessee as my meager finances will allow. Wherever I arrive, I will do what I can to start a new life, a second chance.